Thank you for listening to the Plain State Podcast, a production of the Department of English at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. In this episode, Gail Rotz, Simone Drogi, Emily Rao, and Professor Melissa Homestead continue their discussion of The Complete Letters of Willa Cather, a digital scholarly edition. So, Emily, um, during your explanation you of your first letter encounter, um, you mentioned <laughs> opine beers and Big Willa disapproving <laughs> of the event. Um, this kind of ties back in. I'm curious if you could tell us a little bit more about what else the Willa Cather Archive does and stuff sure. like that. Sure. Yeah. So, uh, in recent years, we've kind of started doing some public outreach and public humanities work, as we're calling it. Um, Opine Beers was our first foray into that kind of experimental event. And Opine Beers is just, it's a pun on Opine Years. <laughs> we go to a local brewery and eat some form of pie, whether it's dessert pie or savory pies mm-hmm. or quiches. Mm-hmm. <laughs> pie broadly construed. Um, and we just celebrate <laughs> the life and work of Willa Cather. It's usually right for, right at the end of the fall semester before the holidays. So it's a nice kind of gathering very limited programming. And so that was our first, uh, yeah, our first effort at kind of reaching the public. raised money for the raffle. We do, yes, um, for the Willa Cather Foundation. Um, And Big Willa actually comes to these events and has a great time. (laughs) (laughs) Last year she had to walk home because she had too much to drink. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, so we also do um, more formal programming as well. Um, we had a year long celebration of the 100th anniversary of the publication of My Antonia in 2019 and had events throughout the entire state. We had five unique events, each focusing on a different theme from the novel that has contemporary relevance and partnered with community organizations in the local communities of where we went. Um, and relied on them and their own community to kind of tie together like contemporary issues and, and Willa Cather. Mm. Um, so for example, we partnered with a business and professional women's organization in Scotts Bluff, Nebraska called Panhandle BPW and attended their monthly business meeting, which actually had over a hundred people come. I think 98 of them were women, <laughs> we had just, just two or three men in the room. Um, and Ashley Olson who's the executive director of the Willa Cather Foundation and I both presented about our work for our respective Cather organizations and talked about like the meaning of that work to us and our own experiences as women, working on a woman who like carved out a life for herself as a professional writer. Um, And so we do some of that. And there's also a monthly book club right now in the community. Um, It's called Second Drafts because we use a lending library that's in a local brewery and like I said, it's a brewery, so there's also draft beer available. <laughs> you may have picked up that we really enjoy puns. Especially <laughs> concerning yes. beer. I know. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, so that's been a lot of fun, too. But the Cather Archive, the actual site, also publishes all of Cather's works that are in the public domain, um, which now is 1923 and backwards. So we actually just put up the first edition of A Lost Lady, we just put up um, Nebraska, the end of the first cycle, which has been pretty hard to find. Mm-hmm. Um, so now it's freely available. And we will soon put up, as soon as I finish encoding the emendations, <laughs> the scholarly edition of A Lost Lady. Um, and then we also have chronologies of Cather's life. We have the Woodruff's biography available, um, some images, and one small recording of Cather speaking. Um, yeah. And then we have, I think 
I think that's about it. Did I forget anything? Uh, yeah. Well, I also want to say that I'm director of the Cather Project, right. which is in the English mm-hmm. department. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Cather Project and the Cather Archive work together, but they have separate responsibilities and leadership. So um, the Cather Project uh, publishes Cather Studies, um, which is a print collection uh, every two years about of essays on Cather, which then later is actually mounted electronically oh, yeah. on the Cather archive yeah. and the Willa Cather scholarly edition, which is coming to a close My mortal enemy and the poems, I think will be the last volumes. And that's been a long process. I think, uh, I think that publication that probably, that probably started about 25, 30 years ago, the mm-hmm. first volumes of it. Wow. Um, and we also work to fund scholars to come to speak on Cather, uh, come from other institutions and to come to do research in the UNL libraries um, on Willa Cather. So. Thank you. Awesome. And I've heard a little gasp from me. I never thought about that. I haven't ever heard a recording of Cather's yeah. voice before. I'd like to check that out. So <laughs> that's she exciting. Says, she says that you can hear that she's from the South, but she sounds totally Midwestern. <laughs> <laughs> No, you don't hear you don't hear a Virginia accent at all. She sounds very flat. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Um, So you're both scholars who look at literary history and criticism from a feminist perspective. How do you think that this informs your work on the Complete Letters Project? Sure. Do you want to go first? Okay. So uh, from the very beginning when we were trying to set policy um, and because of my research and experiences, trying to find women, Mm -hmm. uh, trying to find records of them can be just very difficult, especially because of the convention of women taking uh, their husband's names when they marry. So making women visible uh, in the Complete Letters Project was really important to me. Doing the research on any women referenced making sure that we could find them by all of the names they may have used. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that was one of the policy decisions that I pushed for right from the start. And I also decreed that no bio annotation would ever say she never married because there's just such a, (laughs) there's that teleology. No one ever, almost, almost no one ever says that about a man in a biographical statement. Yeah. You know, does anyone want to say Henry James never married? No. no. Uh, That's so, not why he's important. Right. Right. No. So, so I just decreed we would never say that if someone married and we know it and we think we should put it in the bio annotation and we do, if they didn't marry, you just don't say anything about it because that's not the way yeah. that life mm-hmm. should work. Um, and then the other thing that I have really, um, sort of enjoyed, but also was a choice, was to make sure that we could recognize when Edith Lewis is present. So when I first started on this research on Cather and Lewis uh, 16 years ago, people would say, oh, Edith Lewis is, isn't mentioned in the letters hardly ever. Um, uh, and when she is mentioned, she's just doing things like helping to pack suitcases and, you know, right. she's basically Cather's personal assistant. Uh, now it's also true that a lot of letters have come to light, particularly the letters to Roscoe and Meta Cather's family that mention Lewis a lot more. But even then, um, because we insert those tags, those unique numerical identifiers for every person, just recognizing how often we actually meant Miss Lewis and I, right, right, mm-hmm. um, has just made Lewis emerge as a really vital presence in Cather's letters and her life. So if you search uh, the letters, one of the things that you can do is to look at people mentioned and you can have them displayed alphabetically or by the number of times that they are mentioned. And 
Edith Lewis is right up near the top. I think the only people who are up there with her are really people who we have a lot of letters to them and they're her publishers, mm, right? That yeah. she is in a separate category, the person who is really mentioned the most because we have very few letters to her, one letter mm. and four postcards. Oh. So those are really mentions where Edith Lewis is present. And that, of course, is the whole point of my book project, which is very much informed by my feminist perspective. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Um, and then I think the only thing I would add to that is also in the bio annotations, we made it a point to give everyone like a very brief kind of title of what, who they were. And they're not also, they're never wife of so-and-so. Sometimes so, they kind of have to be because there's yeah. really no other context, but we, but have we do everything that. we can mm-hmm. to not have that be the only thing that's important about someone. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think the other, uh, yeah, I was going to, I agree with everything Melissa said and we did work hard to like, yeah, disambiguate the pronouns so that the data set will be usable for text analysis mm. in the future, <laughs> uh, which I could speak a little bit about that later. But um, the other thing I'll say is I think this, the way that we've sort of really thought about and intentionally structured the project team and also how we give credit to the team, I think is a sort of, is a, a feminist or at least rooted in yeah. um, feminist notions. And the fact that the if you look at how we ask people to cite the complete letters, it's done by the Cather Archive team mm-hmm. rather than like mentioning just Andy because it's recognizing that a lot of the labor is done by actually a lot of women. Yes. <laughs> and also a lot of different types of labor goes into it that's that's also very important and the like, edition couldn't exist without it. And we yeah, so like like students yeah. <laughs> and staff and faculty and other researchers mm-hmm. and yeah so yeah yeah I know that a big part of why I have enjoyed working here is that I feel that my voice is valued and um yeah it's just been a really good experience and I think that that definitely is rooted in like feminist notions so thank you for saying that and thank you for making that environment possible um so what do you both find the most rewarding about working on the project? Um, and what motivates you to keep like working on it? Because it is kind of a long drawn out process. Yeah. I think like now I'm very invested in it and very invested in, in, in Cather and in continuing to put her into the public light, even if it's against her will. (laughs) Um, but so like, I've noticed even when I'm proofreading transcriptions, which can be pretty dull work, I still like get sucked into what the letters themselves are saying and the language of them and the picture of Cather and her life that emerges from them as, as a woman very rooted in a variety of communities who has just like a very interesting perspective. And I haven't spent a lot of time reading authors correspondence or anyone's except my own, (laughs) but it just seems like such a unique body of material. And it's just so worth it to me to keep kind of plugging away at those, at those letters. Um, I think I actually go in a different direction, which is the weird things along the way are the ones (laughs) that keep me engaged. I have read and worked with a lot of authors' correspondence because I work a lot on authorship, history, book history, publishing history. So for me, the things that somehow become the most interesting are the things that are not the main part of the correspondence. In fact, 
If Cather is trying to persuade anyone of anything, I am less likely to believe her than if she mentions something. <laughs> this is really my whole theory of archives and reading correspondence is that the the fact dropped along the way is more reliable than um, than something that she's trying to sell, right? Mm-hmm. Perspective, uh, you know, right down to the things where she says, I just came back from Europe. Yeah. It's like, no, you didn't. <laughs> the last time you went to Europe was 1935. This letter's 1937. No, you did not just come back from Europe. Um, and I think, too, and there just have been other things that have really, I mean, I think um, the, even though I've read a lot of letters and transcribed them and have them in my own research database, um, the existence of the complete letters and the ways of interacting with it have enabled me to do things in my writing also that I would not have been able to do mm-hmm. otherwise. And so I have just really felt motivated to keep the project moving along because I need to use it. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I think that the tidbits that you learn are awesome. And Andy and I actually have, I think three times now at the Cather International Seminar organized Cather trivia, as you know, because you all won this year <laughs> against all odds. <laughs> and like, I remember the first time we did it, my favorite thing people like to ask, like, what have you learned from the letters? And my favorite tidbit to give is that Cather's favorite whiskey is Johnny Walker Black Label, which I had once and it's quite good. But apparently, all talk about was drinking. <laughs> but you know, yeah, but yeah. anyway, and she never writes about beer, though. Yeah, and no then beer. it's also you can use it to write out birthday cards when people turn twenty-one, for instance, and oh. say things like "Champagne cocktails are the best way to start a party," which is a cather letter quote. <laughs> <laughs> I really appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, I like sending weird quotes to Emily to put on our Twitter oh, account yeah. at Hastily Cather. Yeah, <laughs> follow. Follow hastily, Cather. It's great. Hashtag wild for Willa. Yeah. Hashtag big Willa. I must say that I've also enjoyed, if Cather doesn't like something, um, I'll, uh, you know, I enjoy going off and reading it sometimes. That's been fun. Or just the weird things that she mentions. Are you going to roast it with her? No, actually, I assume that I'll probably like it. Really? (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah, because her tastes were very snobbish, and oh. I actually like some of the stuff that she's quite she's dismissive just, of. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> she does also have some great insults, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's what. Yeah, I'm in a Willa Cather class with um, Dr. Andy Jewell, who is the editor of this project, and that's what um, my final project is going to be on: is Willa Cather Rose. Oh yeah, that's awesome. awesome. I know, like from her early journalism career. What was that one sent you? There was a really good one. I I don't have it. I wouldn't have it on me. But yeah, anyway. you'll you'll find a lot of them in her letters. <laughs> They're great. It's yeah. amazing. So this question might be um, specifically for Emily. How would you say this project fits under the umbrella of digital humanities work? Um, and also, what do you define digital humanities to be? And so, how does the project fit under there? Yeah. Okay. So, this project is, of course, a digital archive, and we are invested in everything being freely and openly accessible. And, um, and we work with a team of programmers in the Center for Digital Research in the Humanities, uh, Karen Delzell, Jessica DeSalt, and Greg Tunink. And they have built a lot of software for us, all of which will also be released into um, I think it'll, 
Uh, I, I should be published like on GitHub and published in maybe different formats and made generalizable so that other projects can use some of the things they've created, such as we, there's an annotation software called Anatinia, which is also another <laughs> um, on my Antonia and the word annotation. And it is has been extremely useful because uh, we all collaborate on these letters and the annotation software allows you to like mark different things as like this needs to be corrected in the encoding. This is something that needs an annotation and I can go back and put it in. These are draft annotations and then someone goes through and reviews them. So we always have multiple eyes and hands on each of the letters. But I think the important thing about that tool is that those of us who have never done XML or TEI yeah. can use that tool. And then somebody who does know the technical stuff then uses that tool to write yeah. stuff. It lets those of us without those skills collaborate. Yeah. yeah. And it's like done in, in a, uh, oh, now I forget what it's called. Um, what is it called? Like the... Well, that's okay. Never mind. <laughs> okay. It's okay. Uh, Don't goodness. jump in anything. <laughs> it's like the, it's not in Rails. It's like TEI boilerplate. That's what it is. It's done in that. So it's like, yeah, it looks like a normal interface. Anyway, okay. What, what do I actually have to say here? Oh, yeah. Also, I think the way that we've tr handled the letters and um, done the encoding and the annotating um, could be a model for other um, digital editions of correspondence, especially with what Melissa was talking about with how we make sure to, you know, equally treat men and women in their biographies and also to tag pronouns as people and to tag like work saying like I work working on my book over the weekend and you can tag it as my Antonia and allowing that really sophisticated searching and fastening functions to work. Um, I think has been really exciting and, and somewhat innovative. And I know the CDRH is using, they've, they're sort of building searches like that for different projects as well, and actually just launched um, that full search for the Cather archive as a whole and not just the complete letters, which is great. And so like the project is a digital project, of course, and a humanities project, of course, as well, but also really contributing to the larger body of what the center is working towards and doing. Um, yeah. yeah. And it's the editorial side of digital yeah. humanities more broadly, right? That's As opposed true. to the computational side. Yeah. So, but we do create the data with computational capabilities in mind. Um, and knowing that we want to create data that can be used in experimental ways to create different visualizations or to do text analysis or to create maps out of the data. Um, and so we're trying to like keep it as, uh, yeah, as, e as easily usable as possible. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And on the more practical side of things, um, what is the current state of the project um, right now? And uh, what's the next step? <laughs> um, I guess, yeah, like, when is the complete letters supposed to be done, theoretically? <laughs> theoretically. <laughs> we just finished stage one, which is uh, 1,516 letters that are now available on the Cather Archive. And these letters, it's like about half of the complete, or of all the letters that we know about. We selected them based on the four largest repositories um, that were in the, that we knew about, although, um, it's kind of gotten a little complicated since we chose them because of a whole lot of them 
got transferred back from the Nebraska State Historical Society to the Willa Cather Foundation. So you'll see there are five repositories now in the um, published version. But um, but basically, uh, I don't know where do you want to pick up. Well, so, so this was so that made the most sense because uh, some of those collections, like at the Houghton Library, the Houghton Mifflin papers were one of the biggest continuous bodies of correspondence. Uh, the Dobkin collection, uh, which has the Alfred Knopf correspondence, mm -hmm. the same thing. So you're doing big, you know, dozens, hundreds of letters in sequence. Now, phase two, and then also big family archives, right? We had the Roscoe and Meta Cather correspondence there, the Helen Cather Southwick uh, collection also has correspondence, the Charles Cabot collection, those are all UNL collections. Now it's the smaller ones, mm -hmm. right? Which could be single letters, could be some uh, some substantial groups, like the Dorothy Canfield Fisher yes. correspondence is pretty substantial, and that's all at the University of Vermont. And there are some other, uh, so Aikens yeah. uh, from the Huntington Library, uh, the Elizabeth Shepley Sargent letters from the Morgan Library, those are all relatively substantial, but there's also just going to be chasing down a lot of single letters. Because I think a lot of um, single letters at some point entered the collector's market, the autograph market, right. and they've sort of, you know, floated around and then people who bought them donated them to their alma maters and things like that, or people, fan letters. Cather wrote back to a lot of fans, mm -hmm. and so those letters often ended up in various repositories. Uh, so, yeah, you haven't seen those yet, really, no. because they're not in the big collections that right. we've worked on in phase one, but you'll see a lot of Cather writing back to fans, but a lot of those are like a library that seriously has one letter because yeah. that fan donated that one letter from Willa Cather right. or sold it, and then it ended up in a library. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and we also have been uh, a lot of, uh, if anyone's listening who owns letters, you don't have to donate the actual <laughs> letters. <laughs> you can just give us images of the letters and we can publish them. You maintain ownership and mm -hmm. those, a lot of the private collectors, those will be in phase two as well. Yes. And if there's anyone out there who has an <laughs> attic filled with letters from Willa Cather to Edith Lewis. Oh, that'd be great. You know who to yeah. call. Somebody yeah. Before I yes. submit the book manuscript on March 1st, please. <laughs> so yes. time is of the essence. Yes. And that, yeah. that and was, there, oh, sorry. I was just going to say right now, I checked this morning and there are 3,203 known letters as of today wow. in the world. So Thank you. That was a question that I was going to ask you earlier, Melissa. Are mm -hmm. there, um, as far as, so Cather likely had obviously more than five pieces of correspondence to Edith Lewis in her lifetime. Are there any theories as to what happened to that or is there a known? I have... I have more than one theory. Um, <laughs> I think that it, it is, of course, important to acknowledge that for a long time they lived together. And although they did travel separately, so there would have been correspondence, if somebody's sitting across the room, you don't have to write to them unless, right. yeah. you know, I, yeah, that would just be a strange situation. So they didn't have to write to each other when they were actually living in the same place mm -hmm. and there at the same time. Um, I, I think it is important to know that, I mean, there is a presumption that Catherine Lewis destroyed their own correspondence. Um, I have a 30 page essay forthcoming in Tulsa Studies and Women's Literature that explains why I think that isn't true. So probably don't have enough time to say it here. <laughs> um, but, uh, but, uh, Edith Lewis died in 1972. Willa Cather died in 1947. And there were many occasions before Lewis's death and after Lewis's death that those letters might have exited 
their apartment or might have been destroyed by people other than Edith Lewis. Right. And I don't think there's any reason to think that Catherine Lewis burned up their own correspondence as they were corresponding with each other while they were still alive. So, yeah. so it is, I think, I think it is possible. And even those postcards, yeah. Yeah. um, uh, there were two postcards uh, a few years ago. It's up to four. Those postcards have shown up. How did those postcards get to libraries? How did they enter the collector's market and then end up donated to libraries? So I think it is entirely possible that there's more material out there in private hands. Mm -hmm. And if there is, please help me now. <laughs> in what ways might the complete letters be used in the future by students or, you know, other people? Um, what, what do you both see for that? Well, I think one of the things that um, even with several published biographies, there has been a somewhat vague, just even sense of exactly where Cather was and when she was there. And I think with the complete letters, we're just going to get a much better sense of where she was and when. And that is just such a baseline for all sorts of critical interpretations and mm -hmm. historical thinking about Cather. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that is one of the most important things. If you're relying on paraphrases in a biography and not getting a really concrete sense, I think you couldn't do that. And so I think that, that um, that's just going to have uh, a lot of impact. And I think um, thinking about Cather's um, relationships with her publishers, because we have already, those are published pretty uh, robust sets of letters and annotations that tell you about the other side of the correspondence, even though we haven't published the other side of the correspondence. I think that that is going to make people understand the way that Cather engaged with the publishing industry differently. Some of it would seem to confirm what people thought, but I think it also just gives a much uh, richer hmm. sense of that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think also, like, as I was saying, we've made we created the data thinking about ways that it could be used other than just to publish it. Um, and so we are working right now, we have a project sort of at the beginning stages of being in the works. That's a collaborative project between um, the Willa Cather Archive and then two scholars in the Cather community, Gabby Kirilov at TCU and Matt Laban at Pitt. And Gabby actually worked for us as a graduate student um, and now as a tenure track faculty member at TCU, which is awesome. But so this project, the collaborative project is going to, um, they're going to do some text analysis on the actual data set of the complete letters of Willa Cather, which we should be finished encoding by like a year from now. And so they'll have access to that data. And they have a lot of different ideas. And I think it could go in a lot of different directions based on what they sort of experiment with. But some of the ideas we've been kicking around is like how to represent the gaps in the correspondence. Like how can we create visualizations or do some analysis of like what Edith Lewis in the letters looks like really? Mm -hmm. Does it, does the way Cather talk about her change based on her, the recipient of the letter that she's writing? Um, also, even looking at just like analyzing the language she's using for about different books or different to different audiences um, and things of that nature that I think there's a lot there that using these methodologies, we could really start to see things emerging that could be hidden from the way we encounter the letters right now. Um, and the other thing that we have done intentionally with the way we've created the edition is made it so that Cather scholars like, like Melissa can use the edition 
to really do a lot of in-depth research and to do these really um, somewhat sophisticated searches and faceting results so that you can really see, like, I want to see every time she mentioned, like, this novel to the members of her family, and you can read them all. But we also did it so that anyone can come upon it and come upon a letter on the internet and read it and get a sense of what what's going on in that letter. Um, so it's a resource students can use just as easily as, like, Cather's colors. Yeah. yeah. And the come upon function, one of the things is the letter of the day. Uh, oh, yeah. So, yeah, so, so if she wrote a letter on this day, you want to see what Willa Cather was writing in any particular year. If she wrote a letter that day, you could just dive in. Mm -hmm. And there is enough context if you engage with the annotations that you could figure out what that letter is about, um, which otherwise would be quite difficult yeah. to do. Yeah. Yeah. And the letters really also, I think this isn't exactly an answer to this question, which should be put somewhere in this episode that. Um, I think the letters really show what, like, Red Cloud looked like as a community in some ways, based on the a lot of the work that Cardi Ronning has done on the addition to identify who all these people are that Catherine mentions in her letters who lived in Red Cloud. Yeah. And also even just knowing, like, what the events are that she's referencing. Um, and it's, yeah, so Kari's work has been very instrumental in this creation of the edition. Of yeah, Time. and Kari is a research associate professor of English and a longtime editor on the Willa Cather Scholarly Edition, who quite literally knows where the bodies are buried in Red Cloud. <laughs> yeah. All centuries has read, you know, years ago and continues to read all of the local newspapers and took notes on them. So she just knows all of that part, Cather's Nebraska life. She yeah. really knows who all those people are. And now... Um, um, because she was working on uh, notes for the novels that are set in uh, in Nebraska mm -hmm. and edited Obscure Destinies, which is three um, stories set there. So, yes, that that is now uh, a lot of Kari's great expertise is available to everybody. Yes. Uh, we can always just ask her questions, yeah. but you can also get it now. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Um, Emily, because Melissa mentioned Tom Gordon Place is, um, as far as, like, literary um, analysis and things like that of Cather's works. Could you talk a little bit more about the geographic chronology tool and what that oh, looks yeah. like? Sure. So the geographic chronology um, was, I'm not sure who created it, but someone... Andy, Andy Joel. Did well, Andy, he worked I with someone... programmers, but it was his. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So it's, yeah, that's, sorry. I'll start over. The geographic chronology is like a map-based chronology of Cather's life where you can either interact with it by by time or by place and kind of see where she was traveling. And the data for that comes from, well, now it's being drawn out of the letters, but before that it was sort of hand compiled. Um, and it, uh, and a lot of it comes from actually, some of it comes from Kari's chronologies that she's created over the years using the newspapers that she found. Um, and then it also just from like other research that so you can, we need, to, we are in the process of updating it based on the complete letters edition now, because we have sort of narrowed down timelines of things and, and places she actually traveled a little more specifically than they appear there. But it is, it's pretty, it's a useful resource. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's really useful when I'm encoding. Yeah. I use it all the time. As yeah. well as the other, as well as just the chronology of her life, also, um, it's really useful tool on the website as well. Yeah. Um, so we're we kind of have aspirations to have a, a symposium acknowledging the completion of the edition, bringing together scholars who um, use the letters a lot in their own work, also bringing back everyone who's ever worked on the edition over the years, which there have been a lot of people. 
um, and and then inviting new members of the public and new Cather scholars or whoever. It's an open event, obviously a public event, um, really to like celebrate the the almost completion <laughs> as far as we could get to completion of the edition. <laughs> um, and yeah, so I think that'll be an exciting event. And I think it'll be in the summer of 2022. It's still in the very beginning stages. Um, so keep an eye and ear out for that. Yeah, I'm looking forward to attending it, hopefully. <laughs> um, yeah. And if you're interested in visiting the Willa Cather Archive for yourself, um, you can go to cather.unl.edu to explore photos, letters, and stories written by and about Willa Cather. And thank you again. Special thanks to Professor Melissa Homestead, Emily Rao, Simone Drogi, and Gail Rocks. Plain State is produced by Robert Lipscomb. Post-production by Stephen Ramsey. Music by Shadows on a River. Additional background laughter in this episode provided by Jonathan Chang. My name is Fiona Long Bulldock. On behalf of the Department of English at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, thank you for listening to the Plain State Podcast. Tagline forthcoming. <laughs>